break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here on The Punch-Out, 7th of March, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show And we got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be giving you yet another story about the poison in your water if you live in the United States. We're going to be talking about repression going on in Eastern Europe against various political movements. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the ongoing struggle in Sudan. The anti-coup protests in Sudan have fallen off the radar a bit as the war in Ukraine has taken over the news, but the movement continues and has taken further steps to define its aims. On February 28th, the most recent March of Millions, as the large anti-coup protests are named, brought tens of thousands of people into the streets around the country, including the capital of Khartoum, as well as other protest centers such as Wad Madani, El Obeid, El Gedaref, Kasala, Port Sudan, Kosti, and other cities, chanting slogans which called for power to the people. Two people were unfortunately killed during these protests, and 210 protesters were injured, at least 27 by gunshot wounds. As is becoming normal, authorities are using live rounds, including from anti-aircraft weapons, tear gas, beatings, water cannons, and the like, basically anything they can get their hands on, it seems, to disperse the protest, as well as conducting mass arrests of protest leaders, who, according to widespread reports, are then subject to torture. As the news organization People's Dispatch notes, quote, the total number of protesters killed by security forces since the coup has now reached 85 of the more than 3,200 protesters injured. Over 500 are still undergoing treatment. According to the latest data compiled by Hadrine organization, 26 have lost their limbs or other organs and seven have been paralyzed, end quote. Demonstrations have been continuing since the 28th in a smaller way in various parts of the country, including frequent night marches in Port Sudan and ongoing protests in the northern part of the country where resistance committees, the grassroots backbone of the anti-coup struggle, are continuing to block major roadways between Sudan and Egypt to protest austerity measures and demand a more just redistribution of the wealth created in the country. This week, we'll also see demonstrations focused around International Women's Day, March 8th, highlighting the key role Sudanese women have been playing during the anti-coup uprising. True to form, the coup regime is continuing to deepen the neoliberal measures that endeared them to the IMF and Western powers in the first place, seeking massive increases in taxes on small traders and various goods and services that will hit poor and working people the hardest, while people are also suffering from soaring prices of fuel and food that far outstrip government aid designed to blunt the impact. The coup government had also tried to massively increase hospital admission fees, but was forced to backtrack after mass outrage. The geopolitics surrounding events in Sudan are also continuing apace and have intersected with the war in Ukraine. Just a few days ago, leaders of the coup regime traveled to Moscow and pledged 100% support for Russia and backed the invasion of Ukraine. 
This isn't terribly surprising because the coup regime has become increasingly isolated and is clearly seeking support from wherever it can get it. The coup regime also has revived talks around allowing a Russian naval base on Sudan's Red Sea coast in the same vein. This does not, however, represent a sign that the West and their Gulf allies, who have a group called the quote-unquote Friends of Sudan, are somehow friendly to the anti-coup protest movement, despite the fact that they are rhetorically trying to pretend as if they support it. And to understand that, we really have to understand their sleight of hand. The Friends of Sudan want to return to the transitional arrangement with the military in the lead and a fig leaf of civilian participation that existed from late 2019 until the coup last year. They want to make things look as if they're democratic. But this model has been totally rejected by the protest movement, who wants no role for the military at all, and has noted that these fig leaves of democracy, the so-called civilian cabinet, is really just a way to hide the true nature of the military being in control. The West, however, wants the coup forces to remain in the center of things, however, because they are guarantors for the critical elements in terms of Sudan's future in the eyes of the West. That is, the IMF instigated austerity, the ongoing participation of Sudanese troops in the Saudi UAE war in Yemen, and the normalization of relations with Israel. So the so-called friends of Sudan are trying to throw sand in the eyes of the world about their support for quote-unquote democracy while working to engineer a result that will short-circuit the protest movement fighting for democracy. Clearly, the coup government, which doesn't want to give an inch, is looking to use Russia as a leverage point with the West, essentially raising the threat that they may abandon some key pillars of the pro-Western orientation they've adopted if the U.S. and others don't ease up on demands that they offer something, even just a fig leaf, to the movement. And Russia is clearly not in any position to turn down closer relations with a country filled with material and human wealth, and as a capitalist country, clearly is not going to put the concerns of the mass movement ahead of the concerns of oligarchic wealth creation. Notably, the movement is also deepening its demands. Resistance committees in Khartoum State have prepared an extensive charter after many weeks of debate. The charter will now be discussed by all 5,200 resistance committees across the country and is also being evaluated by the Communist Party and other progressive elements of the protest movement in order to attempt to establish a unifying document to guide the immediate future of the country that is drawn truly from the grassroots of the protest. The charter calls for a quote-unquote developmental vision that ensures, quote, a fair and equitable distribution of power and wealth in Sudan, end quote. It includes calls to make health care and education free and a social right. It calls for the removal of all Sudanese troops in the war in Yemen and also calls for the annulment of all financial agreements made by the Sudanese governments going back to 1989, which would include the recent IMF austerity measures. It proposes a multi-tier, all-civilian transitional government headed by a prime minister and a transitional legislative council made up of, quote, all active revolutionary forces in urban and rural areas, end quote. The charter says much more than that, but it does give you some sense of the basic discussions that will be continuing to happen across Sudan in the coming weeks in the attempts by the protest movement to present a united front in terms of demands. The struggle then continues in Sudan as the broad masses of people are struggling for a more just future against the reconstituted old guard who hopes to sell out to imperialism and crush any semblance of popular rule. On Sunday, Ukrainian security service arrested two leading communists, jailing them for promoting what the Ukrainian government says are, quote, pro-Russian and pro-Belarus views that they claim are destabilizing the country. Mikhail Kananovich and his brother Alexander Kananovich, who were arrested, are leaders of the communist youth in Ukraine, which alongside the Communist Party has been banned since shortly after the Maidan coup in 2014. 
The arrests continue a long-running pattern of the post-2014 governments in seeking to aggressively criminalize communist opposition as part of the broader drive to push neoliberal policies on the country, which were heavily opposed by the communists, and construct a false narrative that attempts to equate Nazism with communism. And both these things, neoliberalism and this false narrative prettifying Nazism, are dual pillars in the politics of post-2014 Ukraine that has included, as mentioned before, the banning of the Communist Party and banning them from all election campaigns, including the most recent one in 2019. The two communist brothers had previously been assaulted by Nazi gangs in 2018, just to give you more of a sense of the atmosphere. The arrest of the two communist militants come as there seems to be an increasing crackdown against opposition political figures in Ukraine who are deemed to be quote-unquote pro-Russia under the guise that they are spies, saboteurs, or otherwise helping the Russian invasion. Another member of the same party put out a video shortly thereafter calling on opposition members not to, quote unquote, hang around checkpoints, whatever that may mean, because they were likely to be shot as spies or saboteurs. This comes amid fairly widespread criticism of the impact of the mass arming of the population carried out by the Ukrainian government, creating a dangerous situation where just about anyone can be considered a spy or a saboteur and then killed. Even the 110% pro-Ukrainian government reporter Terrell Starr noted over the weekend that the territorial defense forces are, quote, getting out of control and are becoming dangerous, end quote. And this also comes as an unexplained story is swirling around the murder of an opposition MP who was murdered recently despite being a part of the peace negotiations happening in Belarus. The MP Denis Kariv was killed in what the Ukrainian government alleged was some sort of special mission, but which other MPs have said was an execution because he was expect suspected of treason. And there are all sorts of allegations of him being double, triple, quadruple agents flying around this. In addition, a former MP and former mayor who supported the self-declared Luhansk People's Republic was taken from his home and executed by what appeared to be vigilantes in a move that was welcomed by Ukraine's interior minister, who praised the action as creating, quote, one less traitor. All these events speak to concerns that the war atmosphere in Ukraine is being used by elements of the security services and other various forces to settle scores under the guise of defending the nation. Communist parties worldwide are, in particular, demanding freedom for the two arrested brothers. And on a related note, there are reports that over the weekend, 4,500 people were arrested in Russia for taking part in anti-war protests, bringing the total number of anti-war protesters arrested to 13,000, according to at least some estimates. Clearly, the anti-war movement is fairly robust in Russia, and a not insignificant number of public figures have opposed the war, including three Communist Party MPs who had supported the recognition of the two self-declared People's Republics, and also prominent leftists affiliated with the Left Front, along with the liberal pro-Western opposition associated with Alexei Navalny. On the other hand, Russia's large Communist Party, the unquestioned largest opposition party in the country, and a strong voice against neoliberal policies there, is steadfast in its support for the war. And other communist groups like the Russian Communist Workers' Party that are significant are expressing some level of ambivalence, not quite in the anti-war camp or the camp of pro-war communists represented by Russia's Communist Party. Polling is a bit of a wild card here, but from what's out there, it seems fair to say that somewhere from 43% to 75% of people are supportive of the war. It's a pretty wide range there, obviously, but accurate polling is not that available. My anecdotal take, for whatever that's worth, is that around half the country supporting the war seems to be a very fair estimate, but beyond that, don't want to speculate. Regardless, the war continues to roll on without any real break in the fighting scene is very likely in the near future, although talks between Ukraine and Russia are ongoing and may change venue from Belarus to Turkey later this week as more nations seek to intervene as mediators. 
Hexavalent chromium. That's the known carcinogen made famous by the movie Aaron Brockovich. Well, even all this time later, there is no EPA standard for hexavalent chromium in drinking water. And new research from the Environmental Working Group details that 251 million people are drinking tap water with levels of hexavalent chromium that are not safe. The EWG notes that, quote, if inhaled chromium-6, it's another name for hexavalent chromium, chromium-6 particles can cause lung cancer, ingestion through tap water is linked to stomach cancer, liver damage, reproductive problems, and harm to children's brain development, end quote. Despite this, the EPA has essentially done nothing. In 2007, research revealed clearly that long-term exposure to drinking water with hexavalent chromium caused cancer in rodents, which spurred the EPA to begin tests in 2008. And those tests and the review of the evidence is still ongoing. That's right. Started in 2008, 2022 now, still ongoing. And of course, during that time, as alluded to before, other research has shown that the chemical is linked to cancer in humans. But it isn't necessarily that surprising why nothing is happening, since, as EWG notes, the chemical is, quote, used to lower the temperature in electrical power plants, cooling towers. Contamination can also originate from the improper disposal of industrial waste, especially those created during the manufacture of chrome metal plating, wooden textile products, and stainless steel, end quote. So in other words, to regulate it, you'd have to take on a bunch of big businesses. So instead, the government just prefers you get cancer. Just another great example of where priorities lie in capitalist America. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 